Today we're going to open to Paul's little letter to Titus. So go ahead and find that in your Bible. Titus is another one of Paul's protégés. We don't know exactly where Paul and Titus first met. We have some hints that he was at Antioch uh, right around uh, 47, uh, whenever the whole Judaizer controversy blew up there, because Paul brought Titus to Jerusalem with him as an uncircumcised believer in Jesus. And in the book of Galatians, uh, Paul says, but Titus was not required to become circumcised. Uh, now, does that mean that Titus is uh, somebody from Syria, from Antioch perhaps itself, uh, that became a believer in Jesus uh, somewhere around uh, 44, 45, 46, something in that neighborhood. And, and so Paul may have uh, tapped him to be kind of a, a, a junior uh, preacher, someone to learn from him. Or is it possible that uh, Titus was picked up somewhere along that first missionary journey that Barnabas and Paul went on uh, across the, uh, the island of, of Cyprus and then up through Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, uh, because that happened just shortly before the whole Judaizer controversy blew up. Doesn't ultimately matter in the end where Titus first came into contact with Paul. All we know is that here, in 63, apparently, after Paul had been released from his Roman detention at Rome, and his imperial review apparently went very well, Paul dropped Titus off at the island of Crete and gave him an assignment to work with the churches on that island and bring them up to standard, uh, make sure they had good, solid spiritual leaders and that they had good, solid uh, ties with Scripture. And so Paul is in Macedonia later in that same year, I believe, and writes back to Titus to let him know, to encourage him, keep the job up, keep going, stay on track. Uh, but he also tells him, I want you to come and join me soon. And so apparently by this time in the later portion of 63, I think probably the later fall, uh, Paul has uh, decided he's going to uh, head over to the west side of what we call the Greek Peninsula today and winter at a place called Necrop Nicopolis. And I think that he was planning on leaving from Nicopolis uh, in the earliest part of 64 to head off to, to um, uh, Spain, because that had been one of his long-term desires, is to take the gospel to Spain. And I believe that he had Titus in mind 
to accompany him on that next missionary journey, which is not recorded anywhere in Scripture, but is hinted at uh, in uh, some of the early church traditions. Well, with that background about uh, Titus, let's uh, open up to Titus 1.1 and push in to this next pastoral letter. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Now, that's a lot of stuff packed into just a few words. So let's take it apart a little bit. So first of all, Paul is enslaved to God. He makes that clear. Uh, Now, he is a a freedman, if you want to think of it that way. He was a slave that had his debt paid, but he he doesn't want to leave the service of his master. So he sticks around. And freedmen were really um, held in high esteem in the first century culture uh, as um, representatives of their master. So Paul is a servant by choice of God the Father. Uh, But he is also the apostle of Jesus Christ. He was tapped by him on that road just outside of Damascus, uh, way back probably at the end of 33, maybe the beginning of 34, when Paul was probably in his upper teens, maybe he was 20. Uh, And he was told at that time that he was going to become the apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, that is, to the non-Jews. And uh, eventually, he took up that role and uh, was going on all these different missionary journeys for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That's what he brings up right here. For the sake of getting the gospel out to those that God chose to be part of his eternal kingdom and for their knowledge of the truth. Now, when we finished uh, last session, uh, remember the warning of the Apostle Paul to Timothy, his protege that's serving at Ephesus right now. Uh, He warned him against people that were promoting a so-called truth. Well, here... Paul reminds Titus that I'm out here promoting the true truth. And these people need to know about that. And what is that truth? It's Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to God the Father except through him. And that truth is in accordance with godliness. Remember in this last uh, letter, Uh, Paul was going on about uh, this fake godliness, godliness in the air quotes, the religiosity that some of the false teachers were promoting for their own material benefit. Uh, But here, Paul is reminding Titus, I'm out here promoting true godliness that goes along with this truth, that goes along with this faith, and you ought to be doing that too. Verse number two, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised 
before the ages began. So way back at the very beginning, when God first made Adam and Eve, he made them to live forever in his presence. That's true eternal life. To live with never never dying, never coming to an end, but living and having this eternal relationship with God the Father. That was his intention. When sin entered the picture, screwed everything up, physical death came into the frame. And as sin passed from generation to generation, because all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, so did physical death. But the promise of God from the very beginning was that he was going to provide a way to fix that. Jesus is described in other passages as the Lamb of God that was offered as a sacrifice before the foundation of the world. So before God spoke anything into existence, he already knew there was going to be a problem, and he already had the solution, which means that he could already make the promise, you will be able to live with me in right relationship forever if you will just trust me. And so that becomes our hope. Uh, Everywhere in the New Testament, we think about hope. We're thinking about Jesus finishing the promise. He's going to come in his eternal body into the skies over the Middle East, and we will be changed. We will be resurrected into our eternal bodies, and we will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will ever be with him. That's the hope that all of us need to hang on to. So Paul tells Titus that it's in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So God has a schedule for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was born at just the right time in world history to make the biggest impact. And the preaching of the gospel began on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem at just the right time to make the biggest impact. And it proceeded outward from there in just the right time to make the biggest impact. And so Paul had been entrusted with some of that. And now Titus, like Timothy and others, have been entrusted with that. And so Paul wants that to be on the table from the very beginning of this letter. And we who are Preachers in particular really need to grab hold of this description of the gospel and its place in the world and in the world history. Uh, Verse number four, to Titus, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Now, we already know that the Apostle Paul, by his own choice, never married, never had children. But he did, in a way, adopt young people, young men in particular, 
into his life to train under him, and he thought of those young men as his children in the faith. And so that is Titus here. Uh, He's the adopted child of the Apostle Paul. Uh, And uh, all of us who are preachers, uh, I think we probably have a similar feeling towards some of the younger preachers that we've taken under our wing and encouraged and and taught and um, critiqued and and had feedback sessions with, we think of them as our kids, you know? And when your kids do well, you're proud of them. And so here's Titus, here's Titus, Paul's child in the faith, just like Timothy is. Then we see the typical opening of the Apostle Paul, the double, uh, uh, the double opening of grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, unmerited favor, the typical way that Greek people would open their letters. Peace, which is the idea of, of, of a peaceful relationship, a, re, a, a relationship that's working properly, and it's very much the Jewish way of opening a letter. Uh, but you put them together, and it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the one that provides that unmerited favor. Jesus is the one that provides that peace that passes all understanding and repairs the relationship. And all of that comes to us from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Paul jumps right on uh, the the thing that uh, he wants Titus to focus on. Verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete. So it seems as if the Apostle Paul dropped him off at Crete. Uh, that maybe when the ship left uh, up at Rome, it traveled down between Sicily and the, and the toe of the boot, and then maybe had a port of call at the north coast of Crete. Uh, and Paul doesn't want to, he doesn't want to s- sidetrack himself to the island of Crete because he, he needs to go and visit uh, over at Colossae. He needs to visit up at Philippi, but he ultimately wants to head off you know, to Spain, I think. So instead of offloading himself at Crete, he offloads Titus and gives him an mission, gives him an assignment. Now, Titus, I'm guessing, is probably a little bit older than Timothy. He may still be in his later 30s, but it's also possible he might be in his very early 40s. But he is certainly competent and capable to function on his own in preaching and teaching and being the apostolic delegate of the Apostle Paul here on the island of Crete. So he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. So there may already be, almost certainly already is, the presence of Christianity on Crete. The Apostle Paul might have actually helped establish a congregation right there in the main city on the north coast. But there's more to do. Uh, Every time a, a church gets started, it needs to grow spiritual leadership. It needs to grow logistical leadership, the, the deacons and the deaconesses. 
we saw that uh, in Paul's concern writing to Timothy, uh, that Timothy needed to make sure the right guys were in the overseer positions, that is, the elder positions, the, the spiritual leadership, the shepherds of the congregations. Well, here's the parallel in uh, Paul's letter to Titus. He says, You need to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So you need to make sure that there are spiritual leaders in all these different congregations. And then he goes through a list that parallels beautifully all the things we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is why I'm only going to kind of do a review here of what I said in more detail there. So uh, if some of you are only jumping in here, I encourage you to go back and and listen to uh, the 1 Timothy chapter 3 session. If anyone is above reproach, uh, this is the idea of it doesn't have handles. You can't grab hold of it. I I told you I found this word in uh, legal texts, and so I like to use the term unindictable. Uh, So there shouldn't be anything that immediately pops up about these gentlemen, Uh, because if there is, that's a problem. They should not be in spiritual leadership if there's something that people can grab a hold of as soon as their name comes up. The husband of one wife... Uh, Now, the literal phrasing is husband or man of one woman. And this is not about polygamy. Polygamy was illegal in the Roman Empire. So that's not even on the table for discussion. I also don't think it's a requirement that Paul is laying here. He has to be married because that would make Paul disqualified for spiritual leadership. It would make Jesus disqualified for spiritual leadership. And you know that Paul has also advised uh, in his Corinthian letter, I think that uh, all you gentlemen would be better off remaining single during this time of crisis uh, because married men have other responsibilities than just to God. Uh, So I don't see the Apostle Paul uh, laying down here that uh, elders in a church have to be married. What I do think he's saying here is, if they are married, they need to be faithful to their spouses. That needs to be um, a reality in their life. Now, if they were Christians and they cheated on their spouses, I think that disqualifies them. I'm, I'm not going to be ashamed that that's the standard I take. I think that is appropriate. Now, if they were pre-Christian, you know, before they became Christians, they cheated on their spouse, and then they worked things out, perhaps even in their conversion to Christianity, uh, I think you're a new creature in Christ. And so that that needs to be looked at uh, in a different view than you do if somebody's cheated on their wife after they professed faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, So the idea is they need to be stable in their marriage if they are married, faithful to the wife of their youth. Uh, The next line uh, in our English Standard Version that we're using is this, and his children are believers. I disagree with that translation, and here's my reason for it. 
the word that gets used here shows up in chapter 3 as well. It's a modifier uh, for the word um, saying. And it certainly isn't intended there to be, and this is a, a believing saying. It's actually intended as a modifier meaning trustworthy or faithful. And so I believe that this should be translated his children, and we're clearly talking about minor children here. Uh, just look at the parallel in 1 Timothy chapter 3. His minor children are faithful, that is, trustworthy. And then the next phrase explains what is meant by that. Not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So, in a nutshell, Paul is saying, look, when you're tapping people to be elders in the church, if their kids are out of control, if their kids are juvenile delinquents, that is a disqualifier. Uh, they shouldn't be out being wild, and they certainly should not be... Uh, you know, disobedient in a very uh, blatant way to dad. Uh, that's the insubordination thing. And uh, the explanation in the First Timothy passage is, if a person can't have their own household in some sort of stability, how are they going to be able to keep the household of the church stable? Because if they can't do it on a small scale at home why would you think they can do it on a larger scale with a whole bunch more people? And so uh, that is a very important thing to evaluate when you're looking for potential elders in your local congregation. He continues, verse number seven, for an overseer, that's actually the word he used in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, in 1 Timothy chapter three, uh, means supervisor. Um, someone who's keeping a watch, keeping an eye out. Uh, so these are not the bosses of the congregation. These are the protectors of the congregation. These are the, the, uh, the shepherds of the congregation. For an overseer as God's steward. Now, a steward is someone that's managing things for somebody else. And so that's what these leaders are. Um, when Peter talks about this sort of stuff in his letter. He talks about the fact that uh, the flock belongs to Jesus Christ. He is the chief shepherd. Uh, all of us who function as spiritual leaders in local congregations, we're the under-shepherds. Uh, we work for him. The flock doesn't belong to us. Uh, that's why I studiously try to avoid referring to the church where I'm serving as my church. It is not my church. It is the church where I serve. It is the church that I help lead for Jesus Christ. And I, th I really think all of us who are in leadership need to, to re restructure our thinking that it's not our church. It's the church of Jesus Christ that we're working with. Now, as God's steward... He must be above reproach. So it's been repeated, so it must be very important. 
He must be unindictable. He must not have handles where people can grab a hold of him and say, no, this guy's got problems. He must not be arrogant. That's important. We don't want self-centered people in leadership. It should not be about them. It's about Jesus, and it's about Jesus' people that he died for. So he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He can't be, you know, flying off the handle all the time. That's a bad character flaw uh, for anyone in type of spiritual leadership. Or a drunkard, never a good idea to have someone that's got addiction problems uh, in spiritual leadership. Uh, They need to uh, be sober uh, in the way they approach things. Or violent, you know, you can't have them punching people as a solution to uh, problems. Punching is not a good leadership style, folks. Abusiveness is not a good leadership style in the church. Or greedy for gain. That gets back to the topic that we had earlier, isn't it? Um, You know, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. So you don't want to see that in a leader. But hospitable, that's a lover of strangers meaning they care about people they don't even really know yet. A lover of good, so wanting to do the right things. Self-controlled, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit, you know. Upright, so they do things the right way. Holy, you know, holy like God is holy. Uh, Committed to doing things God's way. And disciplined. Uh, discipline means you are under control of, of God's word. And so that's what we need to see in these church leaders. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So the spiritual leaders are the ones that study and absorb and think about the word of God all the time. Preachers like myself are an example of that. And we need to take that intact, the way it was intended, and pass it on, make proper application. Um, Because, it says here, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound or healthy doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So church spiritual leadership, these elders, these shepherds, these, these pastor teachers, they need to teach the word the way it's supposed to be taught. And they also need to deal with those that try to contradict God's word the way it's supposed to be taught. Because we always have that problem. And Paul will get into that the next time that we open up the scripture to the book of Titus and get into the word.